Hi there, and welcome to Vox Talk, your weekly review from the world of voiceover. I'm your host, Stephanie Cicerelli from Voices. What does it take to be an announcer? Jim Van Horn joins me in studio to discuss voicing as a broadcaster and all the wonderful things that shaped him to where he is today. So Jim is the coordinator of the broadcasting journalism and TV news programs at Fanshawe College in London, Ontario, where he taught for nearly 20 years. And when he's not at Fanshawe, Jim puts his voice to work as a radio analyst for the London Knights in the Ontario Hockey League. Welcome to the show, Jim. Thank you. Great to be here. So, so Jim, like, obviously we've known each other for a long time. Yeah. It's wonderful to have you here. So grateful. I'm excited. Yeah. And you have so many memories that I know I've heard some of them, but everyone else should too, I think. Right. And so you like, how did you get started in loving broadcast? Wow. Uh, it's a, it's, it's such a warm memory to retell this story because, uh, it just brings back, uh, young Jamie Van Horn at the time on the fourth concession, Chatham Township. Tuning into my parents' radio, it was one of those cabinet stereo record player, everything was in it. Everybody probably remembers it from my era. Anyway, the 60s, you lifted up the cabinet and tuned in the radio myself um, to baseball games. So that was kind of my first. And it was 1968. My favorite team won the World Series, and they were so exciting. And it seemed like, to me, every game came down to this uh, final inning comeback and I remember tuning in to the radio broadcasts of Ernie Harwell and the crowd sound, the method of describing baseball, building up the tension with the oh, 2 2 count. Here's the pitch. He fouled that one off. And you just go, oh, you know. And then Tom Magic would hit a winning home run against the Orioles in the upper deck. And it was so exciting. And, and they went on, won the World Series. So. That, those are like my first memories, but uh, sort of away from the being a super sports fan and listening to those uh, b uh, baseball games, I was a mimic. I just loved, I was a middle child. I loved entertaining my parents and my siblings by just uh, recreating voices I may have heard. Uh, so it could have been Batman villains, you know, that was uh, a memory uh, cartoon characters. Uh, I can remember one of my first heroes was Mel Blanc, who did the, uh, my favorite character was Bugs Bunny, the greatest entertainer of the 20th century. Uh, but Bugs Bunny uh, was the voice of Mel Blanc. And, and then I found out he did like almost every cartoon character that I followed so closely and I couldn't believe it. And so I thought, this is, this is fun, you know, just the way to use your voice in different ways to either inform or entertain and so I just got caught up in all kinds of uh, methods of broadcasting, but also entertainment, um, various movies. Uh, I used to, I, I, back to the uh, TVs, you know, I used to love doing the Batman villains or uh, I, my first sort of film, two films that I remember as a young child would have been Wizard of Oz, uh, the, uh, the Burt Lahr as the Cowardly Lion and... Uh, Jungle Book, and I can remember the deep resonance of that George Sanders character, Shere Khan, who was this evil tiger, right, and just kind of prowling along, and the beautiful syrupy uh, resonance that he had in this bass tone of voice, and Phil Harris blew the bear, kind of this all over you kind of uh, thing, and I, I mean, I, w I didn't study it at the time, but just the emotional impact that it made on you. 
And Rich Little was one of my first uh, heroes. You know, there was a show that I got caught up in, Copycats, and it was just this impression show. And and Rich Little, and I found out he was Canadian, so then he became sort of my hero, but he'd do President Nixon. I am not a crook, you know, and he had all the facial uh, gyrations and everything, and Frank Gorshin was a part of that. And he was the Riddler on on the original Batman series. So those were kind of my uh, inspirations when I was... uh, didn't I waste a lot of time, right? <laughs> time well invested, actually, given so. your career path, right? Yeah. Like they always say, you know, if people who were the class clowns, per se, <laughs> in class, they're now getting paid to do what they were once sent to detention hall for. So, you know, like this is, exactly. you know, it, it just, that's just something I think that a lot of people in voice know to be true is that you mimic, you hear, because we learn by hearing, right? And then you learn again by doing. And and that's a great way to experience voice and, and what it means to you. And, and I loved what you said about the announcer on the radio, because like this is theater of the mind, right? Like this is voice, it's narration, it's storytelling. It's all kinds of different things. But uh, when the announcer has the buildup, you know, here comes the pitch and it's the anticipation that here it comes. Exactly. And, and oh my goodness, like, you know, you're living there in the moment with them and they're helping you to see something that you wouldn't have seen otherwise silence is a sound right silence is he walked over to the door heard a noise reached for the door knob and you feel the the silence silence is a sound right so you can you can create that and and uh, one of the things i i wish that your audience right now could see and that i wanted to point out as well is and getting into what I would later do, and that's teach, is the way you use your entire body. And you're so beautifully using your entire body. Your hands are moving when you're talking. So you, you as a trained voice person, uh, one of the things that I have to take our students and let them be free to do at first is learn the, f- you can do this. When you're behind the microphone, move your arms. There was a newscast. I also used to listen to a radio station in Windsor, Detroit, AM 800 it is now, but it was CKLW, the big eight. And they used to talk about Dick Smythe. He was the news voice. And Dick Smythe would come on and he would almost hit the mic with his arms as he gyrated. And, you know, there was a fire last night at Detroit's east side. Six smoke eaters were taken to hospital and and he'd be moving his arms. And they said he had a, a... a blood vessel in his forehead. <laughs> and when he read his newscast, that blood vessel would pulse. It had so much tension in it. And uh, this is part of the performance that I became fascinated with, uh, as you said, so theater of the mind, right? That So I, I when I instruct our students very early, they're very timid. And uh, the first thing we have to get over, two things physically, is that this is an entire body experience. Um, move your arms if you feel that's going to Add to the to the energy of it. Uh, watch your mic position, but move your arms, and also the physiology of resonance through the nasal passages, relaxing those vocal cords so that you don't tighten up, and then your voice goes nowhere when you're really nervous, and all of the physical things. And then, of course, being comfortable with your physical environment, like uh, whether it be if it's on television in front of a live crowd. Uh, one of the things when I was in television I used to love doing was doing live hits and have a crowd there. I just got so much energy from that. But some people, that's very nerve-wracking. So you've got to handle it either way. 
and find a way to almost kind of make two minds, uh, that you're a performer on one side of your brain and then your intellectual side is, is disseminating the information and to be comfortable with those two sides working together. It's a, it takes a lot of practice. Absolutely, it does. Oh, my goodness. I'm just thinking like it's that's why it's good to plan. If you can plan ahead in any of the work that you do, especially if you're doing live work, which I know in a previous conversation we had Joe Bowen on, who I know you are familiar with as well. Yes. And just the the whole thought of being prepared, but knowing that in the moment anything could happen when it's really happening and that you sometimes you just have to throw away whatever you prepared and you have to go <laughs> ahead with something else entirely. Exactly. It's so true. And that's where, uh, well, uh, the practice takes over, but also um, being comfortable and relaxed. Uh, yes, you're a performer and this, wherever that place is, and as a music person or as a performer, be it on stage or what have you, everybody kind of can relate to finding the balance between concentration and intensity. Uh, you need to be able to be comfortable in that position because you have to use the energy and your physical performance has to be there, um, but you have to be relaxed enough and prepared enough. That's what really does it, isn't it? Preparation. But you have to be prepared enough to be able to think on your feet and to go this way or that, depending on the circumstances that you, uh, you've outlined. So, yeah, and that's, uh, I mean, that's a long, uh, that's a very, I'm simplifying it, but as a student, it takes a lot of practice to sort of mix all those things together in broadcasting. Yeah, in broadcasting being a live art, for the most part, I would say, uh, there's all kinds of things that can happen. I was just, you know, just thinking about what we were talking about. I, I was thinking of years and years ago when I competed in a, 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 not a choral competition, but as a soloist. And and I was dressed up, you know, as, um, you know, I was singing a song from Cats, Memory okay, from Cats. Yeah. And it is so hard to not be overcome by the emotion, you know, let alone the hairspray, you know, <laughs> of what's going on. But like, you have to be in a place where you have the technique that you can fall on, fall back on, um, but you aren't so, you know, detached from what's going on that you lose that emotional and um, just that connection that you have, that you should have, frankly, with your audience and, and what you're doing. Yeah, it reminds me what you're describing. My, my favorite scene in Hollywood history is in Casablanca when there's this uh, scene in a, in a restaurant bar and the Nazis are there singing their uh, national anthem. And then the oppressed uh, French and every other nationality decides to sing the French national anthem and they start drowning out. And I always wondered why I kind of teared up with that scene. But what's so interesting is that many of the people that performed in that scene were, had fa lost family members, driven out of their country. Uh, the emotion uh, on all their faces comes through, doesn't it? It uh, was not acting at that point. Um, and if you go back and watch that scene, you'll, you'll see every person singing the French national anthem there has a story of uh, losing family members, facing death themselves, escaping their home country, and it comes through. And it makes the scene just so memorable. And energy and emotion... I challenge anyone, you know, to watch that scene and not be caught up in the emotion that's reflected. 
Well, that was an era when movies were very different. Uh, I was just watching a documentary the other day, and it discussed how, you know, in the theater, and I know you and I have talked about this, people, but when people would go to see movies, it would actually be someone playing the piano or the organ, right? They were, because there was no audio. Sometimes these were, uh, you know, before talkies, right? Yeah. So you'd, you'd have and talkies. If anyone doesn't know what that term is, please go Google it. Like yeah. <laughs> that it was movies made before you actually had sound and voice included in that, and before the actors even spoke. In fact, some of those actors actually lost their jobs because they didn't have the right voice anymore right. for what people. No one knew what they sounded like. Singing in the rain. Wasn't it about that? Wasn't the whole backdrop to that story of the talkies, right? Singing in the rain, if you ever want to understand it. Yeah. Yeah. And just thinking about that era, I know that you have actually taken a news um, kind of report, if mm-hmm. you will. And uh, it's basically, what was it, 1920s something? 23 or 4, I believe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so like you you took on upon yourself as a challenge to think, okay, well, you know, we're broadcasters in today's day and age. We know what that sounds like when someone's giving reporting on the news that's happening or a sports match or whatever, uh, or whatever that might be. But the challenge that you took on was, well, what would it have sounded like back then? So I think we're going to actually hear what that sounds like. Uh, Jeff, could you cue that, please? One of the exciting aspects of having the Tigers here is someday a player we watched in the minor leagues will go on to become a major leaguer, maybe even a Hall of Famer. But you know what? This has already happened here and with the Tiger connection. One of the all-time greats played minor league baseball in London in 1924. The London Tecumseys were members of the Michigan-Ontario League as they were preparing for their home opener May 5th, 1924. They received news a young second baseman named Charlie Geringer would report to the team. Let's tune in to London radio station CJGC, the forerunner to Radio 98. How would I have reported that news to the baseball fans of London? Good morning, gentlemen James Van Horn reporting sports for Fletcher's Castoria. Remember, Mom, Fletcher's Castoria is a pleasant, harmless substitute for castor oil for your children. Physicians everywhere recommend it. Charles Geringer, recruit infielder that the Tigers took with them for practice, is going to get a chance to develop elsewhere than on the Bengal bench this summer. Transportation to London of the Michigan-Ontario League was purchased for Geringer, and last night he left to join the Class B outfit. Several clubs were after the services of Geringer, it is said, but Detroit manager Ty Cobb turned them down. London wanted a second baseman, and Detroit received assurances from there that Geringer would be employed regularly around the midway. It will be at least a year, perhaps two or three, before the young second sacker is fitted to hold a job in the majors, but Cobb is thinking that far ahead. London manager Beatty was visibly pleased by the Geringer acquisition and hopes to have him in time for tomorrow's home opener against Saginaw. An assembly of 3,500 is expected for that event. Wow, Ty Cobb, like what's going <laughs> yes. on with that? He was the manager of the Tigers at the time, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, um, he did come to London to watch uh, and play in an exhibition. Uh, but yeah, he was, uh, and that's, you know, the, the the first of all, the sound of the old style AM sound, right? The uh, takes you back, just that static, whatever it was, and then the kind of formal language was still in effect. Um, they wrote almost like you were reading from a newspaper, mm-hmm. the formality of the language. And um, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's certainly method acting has probably brought uh, us into more natural conversation. And, uh, but back then, it would have been quite a different experience 
to not only hear something on the radio, but to broadcast and create content for a radio broadcast of that time. And as a mom, Fletcher's Castoria, you know, solved a lot of problems <laughs> in, in, your ch- in your children. So um, it got things moving, as they say, but uh, it was a different time and, um, you know, more, much more formal language. You can just, when you listen to that, you realize how far we've come. Wow. So where did that, uh, that whole sound go? Because like that, that is a very, it sounds so distant, so far away and not just, oh, because we've got the tuning of the radio kind of sound going on, but that delivery, the announcer's delivery has changed, obviously. I think it's an evolution from uh, origins of live performance, theater, and uh, back to even performances, oral storytelling, Mm. uh, which dominated for so many years. Um, That's how things, you know, let's face facts. Very few things were written down at one time. And then so oral stories were the major influence. Uh, And then um, then as performers started to make this a profession... A theater was really dominant, and for many, many years it was live performance. And I think it's uh, just uh, evolving from that uh, early days of uh, the broadcast technology is still still borrowing from oral storytelling in theater. That makes a lot of sense because people were used to speaking to each other differently. Uh, certainly, it sounds like there is a different rapport that the announcer would have had with the audience than, say, today. Uh, more formal for sure, but there was also kind of just a, like you trusted, I trusted that voice probably more than I do some of the announcers today. That could just be because they're telling you facts. They're they're painting a picture with what they have in front of them that is indisputable. It's not opinion. It's simply, this is what's happened and I'm here to share it with you. There was, eh, with an authority uh, and that um, what you heard in those early days uh, you trusted that had gone through this rigorous editorial process, I think is what you're describing, that they wouldn't say that. They wouldn't allow that on the air unless it was true. Mm-hmm. And then the delivery matches that sort of rigorous editorial uh, procedure, you know, where it's, okay, we've got a team of researchers behind us. That's what you think, right? And right. Maybe it wasn't so, but it sounded like it. Okay, look, we've gone through all of the facts, confirmed this, and uh, this is the truth. And uh, that's what it sounded like. I think so. Because in in that, maybe that's what it is. It's the the thoroughness, the uh, researched way of going about things, the just I'm telling you like it is, instead of being the first with the news and maybe being wrong and having to backtrack, but being first was more important. But it doesn't seem like that was, it was a different way of going about things. Well, it was a fascinating uh, evolution um, because that credibility being paramount was also uh, what we're describing is quite expensive, the rigorous editorial. And at that time, regulation, broadcasting was heavily regulated. And so when you um, aired a show that was an entertainment show that got a lot of viewers and made money, part of the uh, regulatory process was a broadcaster would agree then to produce programming that was in the public interest. Mm -hmm. That was the news. And it was the expense of doing that that broadcasters just assumed was part of the deal. We make a lot of money on $64,000 question, but in return for being able to do that, we produce news in the public interest. But then something happened, and it proved to the network uh, powers that information, not only 
uh, was useful, important, um, but broadcasters could use it as a moneymaker. <laughs> That's why I think it's good to always, and this is for broadcasters too, is to always have multiple sources of information that you draw upon for whatever it is that you're researching because there will always be different perspectives. There will always be information that someone has that someone else doesn't by nature of the fact that they've researched more or they've talked to different people. And so that, I guess, it, just turning it back to the whole world of broadcast, um, it's a huge responsibility. And I know we've talked about this before, just thinking about like anything that we do, you know, anything a voice actor does, anything that a writer does or an artist, you are literally creating something that is going to be enjoyed, hopefully, but it could, you know, it's an influential, you know, it could, it could be helpful or it could be hurtful to your audience. So, yeah, well, we're still in an era where packaging is uh, all important, right? And so um, those items that are packaged with the um, decoration of credibility of a news broadcast still have that weight. Uh, you have to sort of keep analyzing, being critical thinkers, and go back to what is the motivation of the source. Uh, and and that performance, that formality of being on stage and Shylock, I want my bond, you know, whether it's Shakespeare or what have you. And uh, I think as broadcasting uh, took hold in that time, in the 20s, there was still remnants of the old theatric uh, performance. And um, movies, obviously, same thing, then came along method acting in a more uh, conversational style. Yeah, and that's happened with music and all kinds of other mm -hmm. uh, ways of how, you know, we view sound over time to express ideas, to share, to connect, to have wonderful experiences and shared experiences, which I think is the other missing piece of this puzzle. Because back then, like, how many radio stations were there? How many television stations, right? Yeah. So if you, I mean, when I grew up, three or four, and uh, you had to actually get up and change the channel. So you maybe you just stayed on the one because you didn't want to get up off the chair. But yeah, it, it's just uh, broadcasting too uh, just etches in your memory, maybe more so than a print experience. If you read a, read a book, it's certainly a great experience and a wonderful experience, but um, it connects people in different ways. It's more of an, uh, I guess, with your mind and an uh, either a ideological or intellectual experience. Broadcasting or oral storytelling is much more to the heart, and you engage uh, someone's emotions uh, in a theater performance or broadcasting or movie. So in, in, in that w clip that we heard that in broadcast, that credibility, you know, you just got the feeling uh, back in the early days that there was uh, anything that came out over the airwaves was so credible that there was this team of of uh, journalists working to make sure there was editorial rigor to everything that was said and, and what you heard was true, you know, and uh, that was the early days. And there's still some kind of rigor now in, in various countries. I know that you have to actually be certified to speak live on the air, like Dominican Republic, for instance. You you have to go through a course and it's, it's kind of like the bar exam, you know, for the lawyers, like only so many of them will actually get over that bar. That's so true. You have to have a credible uh, card. You, you have to, In I think in the UK, you still have to have a card for being a journalist. I know it, it was that way anyway. And uh, yeah, that is so true. And it creates a different performance, quote unquote, uh, than, and, than a theater performance, if you will. Right. So as we steer away from theater and back into broadcast, I know that you've had a number of successful students over the years who have done quite well. Do you mind telling us a story of one of them? 
Yeah, um, there are so many, right? And it's uh, it's it's all when you think back to uh, the list, it's almost like a spiritual experience, you know, to be part of their lives when they're so vulnerable and developing. And we when it, when we think back to all of us at eighteen, nineteen, twenty. Uh, what did we really know, right? But there was there was a there, there's a long list of successful graduates, but one you could almost see a spark uh, when she was there was Cheryl Hickey, and uh, Cheryl in uh, came to us in 1995, graduated in 96 or 94, I guess it was graduated in 96, and you could just feel something very special, an aura about her. Uh, she was a natural performer, but more than that, she was a really hard worker. And she's now the host of Entertainment Tonight Canada. And I love telling her story uh, because not only it, uh, does she have natural talent, but the work ethic, but also the strategic part of knowing that, you know, when Cheryl graduated from uh, Fanshawe in 1996 and everybody knew she was going to be really just a special talent. And she went back to her hometown radio station to cover Ripley Town Council and do newscasts on CFOS, Owen Sound. She had that strategic mind of knowing how to open the next door and the patience to be really good at and present at what she was doing at that moment, knowing that if I do that, the next door will open. And then if I do that, she actually went to Global as a videographer. And back in the day when those cameras were not light, they were heavy. And she got into Global as a videographer from uh, a TV station in Barrie that she worked at. And so she was kind of this seven-year overnight success because of her talent, yes. But she'll tell you this, you know, I didn't get this job because of my hair and uh, makeup. I got it because I was willing to pick up a camera and be a professional videographer, which at that time was not easy. And so be if I were to give anybody out there any advice to all well, two things, be strategic. That's the part that's missing in most uh, students is the willingness to invest in uh, the very present and the steps along the way. Everybody's in a hurry, especially today. And uh, also just to get mentors. That, and better if you have to produce work for that mentor regularly and you get feedback from them and then you can apply it. And uh, that schedule, that's a very tough thing to do. It takes a lot of discipline to perform, whether it's speaking, singing, uh, writing of any kind, it's the volume of work that's going to close the gap between what you are today, which you know is just a little short of something, and this vision that you have for yourself. Uh, there's only one way to close that gap, and that's a volume of work and being strategic about your development. Very good advice. So if I were an aspiring broadcaster, just someone who wants to sharpen my skills and and uh, have some guidance, like where do I find a mentor, Jim? Like are they like, oh, just turn to your left. There they are. Like like how does someone go about finding someone to walk with them? I'm sure you have, uh, you have stories too. But one of the things I'm so proud of about our industry is that if you really are genuine about get, trying to get better and you really love journalism or announcing, radio, television of any kind, you've got 100 friends. It's incredible how uh, welcoming our professionals are. Uh, I can remember uh, Lloyd Robertson used to, you know, uh, anchor the news and I'd go to conventions and there would be some students, I'd bring some students along that they would be there to accept awards or what have you, or just to enjoy the content and develop. 
and Lloyd Robertson would be like sitting right where you are next to me. And I'd introduce students, and all of a sudden, Lloyd Robertson, the foremost news person in TV in Canada, is like making these students feel like a million bucks. So you've got a friend. And I think one of the things in any performing art, I think anybody who does this, we care about the next generation. And uh, so don't be afraid to reach out. It's really as simple as that, is give it a try. Now, is it going to be 100%? Maybe not. I don't know. But I can't think of anybody that I know of who I've ever met who has denied a young person any advice or being a mentor. Uh, We love it. I love it. And so... If anybody is uh, looking for that person, maybe in their area, like we've got grads. And that's one of the secrets, I mean, of our our program, uh, Fanshawe, I always say to a student coming in, you've got 100 grads out there working for you on your behalf right now who are uh, can give you tips, mentorship, tip, tip you off to jobs that might be open in this area or that. Uh, and I could go coast to coast um, and probably not have to drive more than three or four hours before I would have someone buy me lunch. <laughs> so, yes. well, lunch so is it, always a perk. That's for sure. I know wherever there's food, there will be students, right? <laughs> I'm just saying, just saying, I, so I've been true. there. But it's a great business that way. We love helping the next generation. So, so Jim, you are awesome. We want to have you back on again. Oh, please. But before we do, okay. and someone wants to get hold of you, what is the best way they can do that? I have uh, an address at Fanshawe that I'm going to keep. And as I transition uh, from uh, full-time to part-time, but it's quite a uh, – uh, I, I have a lot invested in that place. So I'm going to stick around. So it's jvanhorn uh, at fanshawe.fanshawe.ca. That's jvanhorn. Vanhorn has an E on the end at fanshawe.ca. Wonderful. Well, thank you again for joining us. Thank you for having me. And that's the way we saw the world through the lens of voiceover this week. Thanks again for being here and for listening to Vox Talk. A resounding thank you to our special guest, Jim Van Horn, for sharing his stories and insightful tips. Now, if you found this episode helpful, be sure to share it with your friends. For Voices, I'm your host, Stephanie Cicerelli. Vox Talk is produced by Jeff Bremner. On behalf of the team at Voices, we look forward to spending more time with you soon. See you next week. Thank mm-hmm. you.